What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This episode of This Week in FCPA, Jay and I take a look at the recidivist Deutsche Bank's second FCPA enforcement action. How the FCPA is big business. Harry Kasson explains in the FCPA blog, why should you welcome the NDAA? On This Week in FCPA, we take a look at the Deutsche Bank FCPA settlement, how the FCPA is big business. Harry Kasson explains in the FCPA blog, the NDAA and why you should welcome it. Matthew Stevenson in the Global Anti-Corruption blog, Jonathan Marks in Board and Fraud. How to use key performance indicators in your compliance program, Vera Sharapanova in the FCPA blog. What are your board resolutions for 2021? Steve Durbin explores in Corporate Compliance Insights. How 2020 was a year of ethical challenges by Mike Volkoff. And what are some of the C-suite challenges brought on by COVID-19? Chanel Williams in CCI. These stories, podcast highlights, and upcoming webinars, all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, along with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself, for our live streaming of This Week in FCPA. Um, As everyone knows, President Trump was impeached again this week, and it's certainly been a challenging time for American democracy, but his high crimes and misdemeanors against uh, the Constitution and American democracy. In the midst of this, there is still Plenty of compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, shall we jump right into it? Yeah, let's get a bit of a respite from uh, the world news of the world, and let's look at that. Well, we just lost Jay, so uh, I'm going to continue till he comes back. You went away, Jay, but now you're back. I said, let's uh, jump into some of the uh, more friendly FCPA and ethics and compliance news of the week. We're going to start with Deutsche Bank. Uh, that was uh, settled a week ago today. It was after we recorded and that is one of uh, the biggest uh, settlements, not uh, necessarily uh, dollar-wise, but a lot to uh, unpack in this case. I took a five-part uh, deep dive uh, blog post series on it this week. Matt took a look at uh, red flags and internal controls, and then he and I did a Compliance Into the Weeds podcast on it. There's a lot to unpack. Uh, you have to wonder uh, just how corrupt Deutsche Bank is or was and still is, they're under a monitorship. It's not clear how these facts arose uh, to the level that the department knew about them, whether the monitor uncovered them or something else, but they did not get any credit for self-disclosure. The, um, I think the key lessons learned from the compliance perspective were around uh, missed red flags and internal controls. Uh, in terms of the internal control failures, You basically had the inmates running the asylum in the form of the business development representatives at the bank 
selected the um, third-party agents, they call them uh, business development consultants, and then managed those business development consultants, signed the contracts, and uh, had them paid uh, without really any uh, home office oversight with the knowledge that several of these business development consultants were actually foreign officials or worked for the institutions the bank was trying to do business with, clear conflicts of interest. You had senior management involvement in this, uh, no names named, just uh, that uh, ubiquitous phrase, senior management. And you had uh, contracts signed with no due diligence. You had payments made with no contracts. You had payments made for no services rendered. And you had payments made outside the terms and conditions of the contracts. Um, There was not a complete, total, and utter uh, failure by Deutsche Bank because in 2009 and 2011, the internal audit function took a look at these business development consultants and flagged these as high risk for uh, corruption and proposed a series of uh, remedies or remediations, of course, none of which were done. So uh, really interesting uh, fact pattern on this. I guess you have to say Deutsche Bank has taken uh, the number one lead in the world's most corrupt bank uh, from Wells Fargo. Uh, So perhaps it's good for Wells Fargo. One other thing that struck me about this case, Jay, in addition to Wells, excuse me, Deutsche Bank being an FCPA recidivist now. Recidivist. uh, Sorry. There was a uh, there was a commodity trading component that uh, uh, part of this as well. But I, I took a look at the um, FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Um, that of course came out in November 2017 uh, by Rod Rosenstein when he was the uh, DAG Deputy Attorney General. And there are four prongs to the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy: self-disclosure, extensive cooperation with the government. Uh, thorough remediation uh, of your compliance program, and then uh, profit disgorgement or reimbursement of ill-gotten gain. If you meet those four prongs, you will have the presumption of a declination, except in aggravating circumstances. And aggravating circumstances had a three-part definition, two of which were involvement of senior management and recidivist behavior, both of which we had here. So I... uh, have wondered about this for quite some time because a company can receive discounted credit even if they don't meet those four prongs. It can receive credit for its extensive cooperation. It can receive credit for its thorough remediation, and it can receive credit of up to 50%. But there's no language on the following or those two discounts around aggravating circumstances. It's a long-winded way of saying that no matter how bad your conduct is, and here we had senior management uh, with actual knowledge and recidivist behavior, that a bank can or a company can receive a discount. And here the uh, bank received a 25% discount off of the minimum sentences guidelines uh, and it was turned out to be uh, about $20 million. So um, it really points to something I think it's important for all um, compliance practitioners and white-collar defense lawyers to recognize that you can receive a, a discount really no matter how bad your conduct was if you can clean it up a little bit. So I thought that was a pretty interesting lesson uh, to kind of close out uh, the Deutsche Bank matter with. 
So next up, Tom, we've got uh, something from the FCPA blog uh, from our good friend, Harry Casson, and he's going to show us how the FCPA is big business. How much has the FCPA enforcement and compliance changed over the last decade? Well, if we look at the past five years of FCPA enforcement history, a stunning picture emerges. Here are the average FCPA corporate settlements with the DOJ or SEC or both from the past five years. I'll round them up. 2016, 98 million. 2017, 150 million. 2018, 170 million. 2019, 210 million. In 2020, 535 million. Companies are now paying an average of a half a billion dollars to settle FCPA enforcement actions. That's more than five times what it just was five years ago. It's not quite exponential growth, but it's not far off. However, not every enforcement action involves megabucks, but the big enforcement actions have gotten dramatically bigger. It's not just that the penalties have swelled, it's also compliance staffing. For example, Citibank now employs 30,000 risk and compliance personnel. How much bigger can FCPA enforcement actions get? Goldman Sachs now sits at number one on the FCPA top 10 list. Will it be there for long? How many companies can afford a Goldman-sized $3.3 billion settlement? In the coming year, we'll see whether FCPA enforcement amounts to will continue to expand or if these astronomical figures will fall back to earth. Tom? Jay, next up, we had another article from the FCPA blog, but this time by Dick Casson. And Dick points out uh, or really discusses industry sweeps. And this is something that I think we have observed over the 10 plus years of our careers in this uh, discipline. Uh, certainly, being from Houston, I'm aware of the energy, in, energy industry sweep in the late part of the first decade of this century. Uh, then we had telecom, we had pharmaceuticals, we had uh, tech and computers, and we had uh, private equity. And so we've had a variety of these. And Dick really lays out the reasons why you would have an industry sweep, that uh, the Department of Justice gets uh, one company who engages in behavior, and uh, that company uh, uh, settles, and then that leads to other companies. Um, that's one way. In the energy space, what happened was the, the DOJ uh, determined that a freight forwarder panel PINA was shipping uh, goods into Nigeria and paying bribes on behalf of multiple energy companies. And they got panel PINA's customer list and they started poking around on that. That's another way. So when the Department of Justice sort of figures out who the, uh, the linchpin of all this is, then they uh, can move forward on an industry sweep. And um, Dick asks, is, is another one coming? He had another, a couple of other salient points that I wanted to raise. First of all, he said that uh, many, many companies will uh, follow the leader. If somebody uh, has development in a product or service in a new area, a new geographic area that they will um, uh, lead on and companies will follow. But what companies forget when they follow is they forget compliance and they try to take shortcuts because they're not exactly sure how to do it. They haven't completely reverse engineered it. So that's kind of point one. And then a really interesting point, he's, he noted, uh, Dick is associated or, or runs the, F, uh, I'm not sure he runs, but 
he has the FCPA tracker. It's another business where they track FCPA cases as a subscription service. I would urge you to check it out if you haven't. But um, he's finding, or his tracker, the tracker found that there are lots of uh, FCPA enforcement actions in threes. And I really had not fully appreciated uh, that before. Um, but uh, he talked about uh, three tobacco companies, three aerospace firms, three media companies, three mining companies, three gaming companies. Um, he, dis- he does note that there's still lots of one-offs, but I'd never really focused on uh, that the FCPA comes in threes, FCPA enforcement. So interesting stuff uh, from Dick Casson. Great. Well, next up, we're going to tell you why you should welcome the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, We cite two sources on the show notes, uh, the Global Anti-Corruption blog by good friend Matthew Stevenson and Bored and Fraud by our good friend Jonathan Marks. It's not just the Corporate Transparency Act, other reasons to welcome the passage of the U.S. NDAA. The Corporate Transparency Act, the new law requiring companies to provide the government with information about ultimate beneficial ownership, was passed over President Trump's veto as part of the National Defense Authorization Act. The CTA, despite its limitations and imperfections, will make it substantially harder for kleptocrats, terrorists, organized crime groups, and others to facilitate their crimes and hide their loot. But the CTA is not the only part of the NDAA that may have a substantial positive impact on the fight against corruption and money laundering. And while it's entirely understandable that most of the attention in the anti-corruption community has focused on the CTA, Matthew highlights several other provisions in the NDAA that may also prove important in combating corruption. First, the NDAA includes a new prohibition on knowingly concealing and falsifying or misrepresenting to a financial institution a material fact concerning the ownership of control of assets involved in a monetary transaction of over a a million dollars. Second, the NDAA contains a provision called the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Rewards Act, or CARA, which establishes a whistleblower reward program for those who provide information that lead to the seizure, forfeiture, and other repatriation of stolen assets. Third, the NDAA extends to the requirements of the Bank Secrecy Act to antiquities dealers, or more precisely, to any person engaged in the trade of antiquities. Fourth, A couple of short but potentially important provisions of the NDAA jack up the penalties for institutions and individuals who violate bank Bank Security Act rules. And fifth and finally, NDAA contains some helpful provisions strengthening and clarifying a provision originally enacted in 2001 as part of the U.S. Patriot Act that empowers U.S. enforcement agencies to subpoena records from foreign banks that have correspondent accounts with their U.S. counterparts. While the CTA is rightly getting a ton of attention, that's not the only victory in the NDAA worth celebrating. The bill contains a number of potential important measures, and even though several of these may fall short of the ideal, they may provide a foundation on which to build an advocacy efforts over the next few years. Tom? Sure, Jay. Um, Next up, we have an article 
That's uh, from the always interesting Vera Sharapanova, once again on the FCPA blog. And she talks about uh, KPIs for 2021. And she said that uh, you should have or consider three different uh, general areas. Number one, incorporate value-driven behaviors. Most organizations have an established set of core values, which are the fundamental principles that are supposed to guide business and employees. They're missing performance management process so that you need to develop some descriptions of the expected behaviors. So she gives some examples, lead by example, under ethical, uh, uh, lead by example under challenging situations, be transparent in decision-making, apply ethical decision-making frameworks and everyday decisions. Uh, Second is account for potential ethical dilemmas. She says another common problem is putting too much emphasis on short-term gains, creating environments where the uh, ends justify the means, and of course, the best example is Wells, still is Wells Fargo, and their eight is great uh, touch points for all of their customers. And the final one is actually to ease the pressure. That you don't want to have such great pressure that you um, force people to uh, into unethical uh, actions. So uh, be a little bit careful about what you do put into your KPIs. So some really good uh, information from Vera. Uh, if you don't. Uh, read her. She posts, I think, twice a month on the FCPA blog, and she's always got some really good stuff. Jay? Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we have the first of two from Corporate Compliance Insights. Since we're still in January, people are making those New Year's resolution. And Steve Durbin asks, what are the New Year's resolutions for the board in 2021? In the year ahead, organizations must prepare for the unknown so they have flexibility to endure unexpected and high-impact security events. Steve Durbin takes a look at what should be on the board's radar in 2021. As new technologies emerge, organizations must adapt to changing norms and values. Alongside new technologies, the geopolitical arena is likely to be complex, turbulent, and fragile. The impact will be felt from the top to the bottom within organizations and nowhere more so than in boardrooms. Simply put, business can no longer afford to ignore cybersecurity. After reviewing the current threat landscape, here are five key risks businesses need to prepare for this year in 2021. Cybercrime, malware, ID theft, and ransomware. We've seen an increase in cybercrime targeting the COVID-19 opportunities, and these have not been restricted to ransomware attacks in hospital, but also targeted remote working workers who access corporate systems. Number two, insider threat is one of the greatest drivers of security risks organizations face as a malicious insider utilizes credentials to gain access to given organization's critical assets. Three, the next generation of employees' attitudes towards sharing digital information will fall short of requirements for good info security. Reckless attitudes to sharing information online will set new norms for security and privacy. Four, edge computing will be an attractive architectural choice for organizations. However, it will also become a key target for attackers. It will create numerous points of failure and will lose many benefits of traditional security solutions. And finally, five, organizations will undertake even more complex digital transformations, deploying AI, blockchain, or robotics, and expecting them to seamlessly integrate with underlying systems. Those that get it wrong may have their data compromised. 
So here's what you need to do about involving the board of directors and key stakeholders. The executive team sitting on the top of an organization has the clearest, broadest view. A serious shared commitment to common values and strategies is at the heart of a good working relationship between the C-suite and the board. The role of the C-suite has undergone significant transformation over the last decade. Public scrutiny of business leaders is at an all-time high, in part due to massive hacks and data breaches. Incidents will happen. It's impossible to avoid every breach, but you can commit to building a mature, realistic, broad-based collaborative approach to cybersecurity and resilience. Maturing your organization's ability to detect intrusions quickly and respond in due time will be of the highest importance in 2021 and beyond. Uh, Jay, next we have an article from our good friend and fellow Everything Compliance panelist, Mike Volkoff. And Mike uh, reviewed the ethical challenges from 2020. It's really a wrap up of not simply compliance and ethics, but where we are or were as a country and are in the first week of 2021. He started off by talking about the biggest change, I think, for most of us, although not for you and I, which is working from home because you and I have worked from home for quite a while. But uh, that uh, presented ethical challenges and certainly compliance challenges. Uh, and he moved on to something that many companies are now facing, which is return to work. Should you return to work? If so, what are you going to require of your employees? You're going to require vaccinations. Uh, if an employee doesn't vaccinate, uh, are you going to disclose that information to his or her coworkers? Um, if someone is sick, do they have to disclose that information to their coworkers? Uh, lots of ethical challenges there. But then he really moves on to a much broader picture. And he talks about uh, company closures, business closures, what businesses did to stay open. He specifically cited to Airbnb, who uh, whose CEO uh, put out a lengthy uh, communication to all employees uh, about how they were all in this together. And if cuts had to be made, they would make them in as humane a way as possible, as opposed to some other companies that simply fired people via email with no notice and no uh, severance packages. So that even in uh, the midst of a pandemic, ethics matters, uh, culture matters, how you treat people matter. Uh, he also talked about what he thought was the just the shameful uh, fact that I think it's uh, one in six Americans have uh, some sort of uh, food issues that they need, uh, need help getting the right diet. And uh, then the people who were put out of work from the pandemic and what, what we can do to help them. So it was a great review of many of the ethical challenges that we've seen, some related to compliance and compliance professionals, but uh, others were in a broader scale. So Jay? Thanks, Tom. Next up, as promised, the second of two from Corporate Compliance Insights. This comes to us from Chenille Williams, and we're gonna talk about navigating the CEO moment during the COVID-19 pandemic. Some people say, never let a good crisis go to waste. It's the often brandished call to arms for corporate leaders to be brave in the face of the COVID-19 uncertainty. The pandemic has hit a reset button, changing customer behavior, disrupting supply chains, and dislocating employees from traditional workplace. Crucially, it has also contributed to a global reception, recession expected to surpass the spiral of the global financial crisis of 2008. As a result, the stakes could not be higher for executives. First off, run for cover. 
With such a widespread reach, the threat of COVID-19 carries for directors and officers a diverse uh, is diverse in terms of what it means to each business with the scope of risk ranging from class action lawsuits and shareholder deriv derivative litigation to bankruptcy and an increase in cybercrime as more and more of your employees work from home. Take action. As is the case with the virus itself, there is no miracle one-size-fits-all cure. What companies and executives can do to protect themselves, especially against class actions, is to be digilent, diligent and proactive with informing both themselves and stakeholders about COVID-19. Getting into the specifics of how COVID-19 affects individual aspects, such as impact on supply chains, distribution channels, and key markets is vitally important, while ignoring potential red flags dangers only serves to heighten risk exposure. Return to work, as you and Mike just spoke about. While the field for DNO litigation has been somewhat calm so far, perhaps the biggest threat looming on the horizon comes from return to work steps taken by businesses. The return to the office is fraught with peril, with particular regard to shareholder derivative actions, but also in relations to other forms of litigation. Employers are in a tough spot when asking employees to return, and in particular on deciding which employees to choose. While it's been established that a number of factors increase the risk of contracting COVID-19, such as age and presence of pre-existing conditions, employers are restricted by regulations regarding what they can ask and how they can ask. And risk by risk, given the uncertainty in markets and long-term impact, market volatility has not diminished from those directly impacted. So industries like airlines, hospitality, travel, and retail will continue to be negatively impacted. Regarding the impact and future of the pandemic, only a cautious and detailed approach from both DNOs and insurers will provide a safe passage through this crisis. Conversations will need to continue risk reviewed, particularly as we get to through the second or third COVID-19 waves. The biggest mistake would be to assume that we have seen the worst of the crisis. Bottom line, this is an ongoing fast changing issue and we have to be prepared for things to get worse before, unfortunately, they get better. Tom? So, Jay, um, we are now at the part where we talk about some of the podcast highlights from the past week. And uh, I first wanted to start with the Compliance Life. This month, I'm featuring Gwen Hassan uh, of uh, Managing Director of Compliance at CNH, or CHN, excuse me, Industrial. And Gwen uh, is a little bit unique as she advocates that you can be both uh, in the general counsel's office and the chief compliance officer and wear both hats. So we explored that in depth on this podcast, and it certainly works for her. And um, it uh, I'd really, uh, I'm not a fan of that, but the way she kind of walked us through it, I certainly thought it made logical sense for not only her, but her company. So check that out on the Compliance Life on uh 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. We had uh, multiple um, uh, podcasts this week. On January 9th, 360 degrees of compliance communications. On January 10th, the use of social media and compliance. On January 11th, I asked, what is effective compliance training? On January 12th, financial incentives for compliance. On January 13th, institutional justice and fairness. On the 14th, we looked at risk assessments. And then on the 15th, uh, Today, we took a look at how do you evaluate a risk assessment? 
On 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program in January, I walk you through steps you can take to enhance your compliance program in 2021, literally in 31 days. So it's a great series. Uh, I hope you will uh, check it out. It's uh, available on a wide variety of platforms, as are all of my podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. That's compliancepodcastnetwork.net, the FCPA Compliance Report, J.D. Supra. Each show has its own iTunes. Uh, We're on Spotify. We're on YouTube. So uh, check out some of the uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, as well as the now 40 podcasts I have on the Compliance Podcast Network, including the Affiliated Monitors Expert Podcast Series. In terms of uh, upcoming webinars and events, Jay, if I could talk about an upcoming event, which is <clears throat> Conversant's Future yeah, Future Proof, your compliance program for 2021. Next Wednesday on January 20th, I'll be joined by uh, several uh, commentators from Conversant, but Philip uh, Winterburn and I are going to talk about KPIs. And we've been working long and hard on metrics for a compliance program. And I know that... Uh, this will be something that um, would be of great help for compliance practitioners in 2021 and uh, beyond. You want to tell us about an upcoming uh, webinar, Jay? Sure. Please join K2 Integrity on January 27th to hear Olivia Allison and Joanne Taylor discuss the latest EU regulatory developments in whistleblowing programs and investigations. As always, uh, click through on the show notes. We've got some more information on the event and sign up. And lastly, uh, Compliance Week is accepting nominations for its Excellence in Compliance Awards. And there is a link on the show notes to, uh, uh, to place your nominees right here. Uh, as always, uh, Tom Fox is the Compliance Evangelist. And in addition to all the websites Tom told you about, if you want to reach him directly with any correspondence, he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I am Mr. Monitor, and you can reach me at the initial J Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Tom, anything else uh, before we round out the podcast? Uh, very somber day for somber week for America is all I can say. And, and I would agree with that. So, uh, As I said, on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 235, for the week ending January 15th, the impeachment edition. As always, we hope you are safe and healthy, and we look forward to speaking with you next week about all the happenings in FCPA. Thanks so much, and take care. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this, our first live streaming edition of This Week in FCPA. We were able to do it without too many technical glitches, so Jay and I will uh, probably take this format into 2021 uh, for the rest of the year. We're also doing this on Compliance Into the Weeds with Matt Kelly, and we're going to extend it to the Everything Compliance Gang. So get ready for some great video uh, podcast in 2021 all courtesy of the Compliance Podcast Network. We've linked to all of the articles in the show notes, so please uh, check them out. I know you will find them very interesting and useful going forward. As I mentioned, uh, 
This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.